Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of salvation that he brought us. Without your, your giving and his coming, we would have no hope. But now we who were without hope have hope. And those who are without God are called sons and daughters of God. Teach us from your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 in your Bibles. I considered last Sunday to be Christmas Sunday, but then I was thinking about it. And I said, this is only two days after Christmas. We're actually closer to Christmas today than we were last Sunday. So let's preach about Christmas today. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to use this, a very familiar verse. We're going to use this as a jump off point to get into our topic. And we'll be looking at some familiar verses today, but hopefully um, kind of looking at it from a different perspective and drawing some truth out, uh, perhaps that is unfamiliar to us. Matthew chapter 1, and look at verse number 18. This is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Uh, In the text before us, Matthew begins his gospel in a very specific way, okay? Start back at verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, the Old Testament, I want you to understand this, the Old Testament ends with the coming end of the captivity. Okay, our Old Testament ends with Malachi, which finishes his prophecy by telling of the coming of Elijah and the Messiah. The Hebrew Bible, which has a different order of books, understand it's the same Bible, but they order their books differently than we do. It ends with Chronicles, okay? And so the end of 2 Chronicles, the last couple of verses there, are a prophecy of the decree by Cyrus to return back to the land from captivity, okay? So understanding that, um, their Bible, the Jewish Bible, ends with a promised return from captivity. Our Old Testament ends with the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Then there's 400 silent years, right? 400 years where nobody hears from God. But God is working behind the scenes, right? He's rearranging kingdoms and kings and people and and languages to prepare the world for the coming of his son. He's doing a thousand things that nobody can see during that time. Then comes John the Baptist in in the book of Matthew and the Gospels in the spirit and power of Elijah and Jesus follows shortly after and both are preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They knew that the end of Daniel's prophecy was approaching. The people knew that, that they knew Daniel's prophecy, right? His 70 weeks prophecy. They knew that time was coming to an end and there was an expectancy for the coming Messiah. They were actually expecting the Messiah to come, okay? We see it all throughout the gospels. We see it with the wise men who were looking for the sign of Messiah's birth. We see it with Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2. We see it in John chapter 1 with Andrew and also with uh, the priests and Levites sending representatives to John the Baptist asking if he was the Messiah. We see it in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. Remember she spoke to Jesus and she ran back to town and she said, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that we're looking for? And in Matthew chapter 2 when the king asked what time the star appeared. Okay, there was an expectancy at that time expecting God to do something. Uh, Then we have the words of Matthew in verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. So we have the book of the generation of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, emphasizing his right to the throne, the son of Abraham. Matthew then goes into a genealogy tracing the lineage of Jesus through David and Abraham. Right? After going through the natural process, he gets to Jesus and everything changes. If you read, and I urge you to read 
the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to get into it a little bit here in a little bit. But Matthew and Luke give a, a genealogy of Jesus, and it's important that we read it and understand it, okay? So Matthew goes through this natural process. He says, this person begets this person, who begets this person, who begets this person, right? That's the natural order of things. That's how people come about. One person begets another person. And then we get to Jesus in verse 16. Okay, Matthew 1, 16, and Jacob begat Joseph. So he begat him, begat him, begat him, begat him, begat him, begat Jacob, who begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, right? So Joseph doesn't beget Jesus, right? Jacob begets Joseph, and then Joseph is married to Mary, of whom is born. Now, is a man born of just a woman? Right? No, right? A man begets, so it, it's the, 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 you go down to the genealogy, it's the, this man begets this kid, this man begets this kid. Then we get to Jesus and we say, now, now, Joseph is the last begat in there, right? And then we get to, he's married to Mary, of whom, from whom came Jesus, who is called Christ or who is called Messiah. Okay, it doesn't go on to say that Joseph begat Jesus because he didn't. He was born of Mary, but not proceeding from Joseph. Then Matthew sums up all the generations from Abraham to Christ in verse 17. And then in our text, verse 18, he gets back to the birth of Jesus. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Okay, that's a King James Bible way of saying the birth of Jesus Christ was in this way. Okay, now, now let's put all that together, right? He begat him, he begat him, he begat him, he begat him. Oh, by the way, the birth of Jesus Christ is in this way. What way? Well, not the he begat him, begat him, begat him, begat him way, right? It's a different way, right? It's altogether different. It's not within the natural course of events. It's a supernatural event. Listen to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. The birth of Jesus was a supernatural, monumental event. It was not in the normal order of things, all right? Uh, when, a, when a woman gets pregnant, an angel never comes to her and says, by the way, the thing that you're going to have is called the son of the highest. He'll have the throne of David. He'll rule over the house of David. That doesn't happen. That had never happened before. And here comes Jesus now, right? It was in this way. It was on this wise. It was not in the natural order of things. So I want to talk about the virgin birth this morning, this being Christmas season, because there is a tendency in our day and age to undervalue the, the virgin birth, okay? There's a move in our day and age today in the 21st century towards liberalism. I'm not talking about political liberalism, I'm talking about theological liberalism, right? The idea that, well, Jesus didn't necessarily have to physically rise from the dead. You'll hear that if you go to a university and take religious studies, right? Uh, the virgin birth, well, that's, that's not that important. You can still be a Christian and not believe the virgin birth. Let me tell you this morning, no, you cannot, okay? We need to value the virgin birth 
birth of Jesus. It's important. It's not just a throwaway event that we celebrate once a year, kind of vaguely, you know, what's Christmas about? Well, it's about Jesus being born. No, it's about something much more than that. It's about a man being born out of the natural order of things. A man being born out of the, the natural process. A man who is the son of the highest. A man who will sit on the throne of his father, David. That is a monumental event that you and I cannot compromise on. We cannot give it up and we should not undervalue the events that we celebrate at Christmas. So this morning I want to give you several reasons why the virgin birth is so important. And you, you probably know all these verses I'm going to, but let's go to them anyways. Isaiah chapter 7, turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 7, why is the virgin birth so important? And it is important. Isaiah chapter 7, the first reason is the virgin birth validated the word of God. It validated the word of God. You know the verse, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Everything rises and falls in the Bible on prophecy. According to Deuteronomy 18.22, if a man speaks for God, okay, if he speaks a word for God, if he's a prophet, and that thing that he says does not come to pass, the Bible says he is not a prophet, he is not to be listened to. Okay? Now, we, we, we twist this in our day. We get this wrong. Okay? We have a tendency in our day, especially in that charismatic movement, you have a tendency... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see, you know, a prophet speaking uh, in a video on YouTube or on Facebook. And I, I begin to look up that prophet. I begin to see that, well, some things he said has happened, right? But some things he has said hasn't happened. And so what we do is we look at these prophets today and we say, well, he says a lot of true things. He must be a true prophet, right? But the Bible doesn't say the test of a true prophet is does what he say come to pass? That's not the test of a true prophet. Because a prophet can say a lot of things, and if you say enough things, some things will come to pass. The test of a true prophet is, does anything he say not come to pass? If anything, if one thing he says in the name of the Lord does not come to pass, the Bible says he's not a prophet. He is not to be listened to. He is invalidated, okay? So that's, you want the test of a prophet. Someone says, hey, I'm a prophet. I'm going to speak the word of God to you. Test them. Does anything they have ever said in the name of God not come true? If, they, if it has, they're not a prophet. They're not from God, okay? Keep that in mind. Let's go on here. In Isaiah, the prophet said a virgin would conceive, okay? Let me deal with those who say that Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't virgin born. If Jesus wasn't virgin born, then Isaiah is a false prophet because he said a virgin would conceive. If a virgin doesn't conceive, what does it make him? A false prophet, right? That's right, it does. Then all of scripture, all that that prophet spoke is invalid. It doesn't count. He can't have some things come true and some things not come true and still be a prophet of God. Everything he prophesies must come true or he's not a true prophet. Here's the problem now, okay? Let's compromise. Let's say the virgin birth was wrong. Isaiah missed that one, right? Here's the problem. He also prophesied Isaiah 53. If you give up the virgin birth, you give up the substitutionary death of Jesus. You give up. If you give up the virgin conceiving and bearing a child, you give up. He bore our sins and carried our sorrows. Okay? You can't have that both ways. If he's a true prophet, then everything he said came true just as he said it. If something he said did not come true, then everything he says is invalid. 
That means that if Jesus was not born of a virgin, if we say, oh, well, you can still be a Christian and give that up. No, no, no. You give up the atonement of Jesus, right? You give up that he was numbered with the transgressors. You can't hold Isaiah 53 and throw out the virgin birth. You can't do it. It's, it's, it, 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 it's like a house of cards. It's just, it all falls down. Right? The virgin birth validates the word of God and says, no, what the prophet said did come true. These people today that say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't believe in the virgin. I don't want that sounds, that sounds weird. That sounds, we don't, I hear these Christians say, well, I don't really believe in the supernatural. Then you're not a Christian. The entire Christian faith is a supernatural. God became man, right? He's the son of the highest. He'll sit on the throne of David. All of that is supernatural. Okay, he died on a cross and rose from the dead. That's supernatural. Okay, if you're cutting out the supernatural virgin birth, you have to cut out the supernatural resurrection. You can't take one and leave the other. It all goes together. So the virgin birth validated the word of God. When the virgin conceived, people could look and say, "Mm, what this prophet said came true. Oh, and by the way, now we can have hope. We can trust in that Messiah because we can know that he's going to take away our sins over here. If, I, if Isaiah 7.14 came true, then Isaiah 53 is bound to come true, right? It all goes together. Some critics argue that the virgin birth is, isn't true because in Isaiah 7.14, the Hebrew word that's used for virgin is Alma, which means a young maiden, Okay. They say, well, that doesn't mean that she was a, a virgin. The Hebrew word for virgin is betula. It uses the wrong words, therefore she wasn't a virgin. But let me answer that for you. Uh, if you're familiar with a book called the Septuagint, it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's, it's what the apostles used in the time of Jesus. It was, it was, it was the Bible of the, of the first century. When the Jews of the day translated this into the Greek Septuagint, they used the word um, Parthenon which means virgin, which tells me that the Jews of the day understood exactly what the prophet was talking about, okay? So don't let them get you with that. Besides that, the word Emmanuel is in there. The word Emmanuel means God with us, okay? So we know that it was a supernatural birth, a supernatural pregnancy. Not only did Isaiah prophesy the virgin birth, you know who else prophesied the virgin birth? You ready for this? You want some authority? God prophesied the virgin birth. Right after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. He's speaking to Satan here. Okay, let's look at this. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. I don't want to get too graphic with the kids in here today, but I've been through high school science, right? And a woman doesn't have a seed. A man has a seed. But yet, right here in Genesis, right at the fall of man, God says the seed of the woman, right? This speaks of a supernatural birth, a supernatural person, someone who's not, he begat him, he begat him, he begat him. It's verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was in this way, right? It was on this wise. It was different. It came from Mary. It came from the seed of the woman, right? Jacob begat Joseph, who was married to, or betrothed to Mary, from whom came Jesus, who was called Messiah, right? So Jesus came from her. It's supernatural. If the virgin birth can be compromised, then God himself was a false prophet. Then God himself was wrong, and that invalidates everything the Bible says. That that invalidates his authority as God. That completely overthrows him if he was wrong, if he was mistaken. 
So the virgin birth is vital to what we believe as, Christ, as, as, as being a Christian. God said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The reason that the Messiah would be born apart from a, the seed of a man means that he would be a virgin-born man. There's no way around it. The virgin birth is necessary for the Christian. Jesus, our Passover lamb, offered at the Passover, was without blemish, without stain, because as a virgin-born man, he was free from the stain of sin. Because sin is passed on to us through the father from our first father, Adam, Romans 5, 12, and 17 through 18. And that leads me to my second point. Not only is the virgin birth necessary to validate the word of God, the virgin birth is necessary because it created a new Adam. Okay? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It created a new Adam. And this was necessary for us to be saved. Without a new Adam, the first Adam represented the human race before God, did he not? And he was sinless. When Adam was created, he was sinless. He was without a sin nature. And when he sinned, when he disobeyed God, he represented us before God. In Adam, you and I fell. In Adam, you and I sinned against God. And you, in Adam, you and I are born with a sinful nature. So we need a second Adam, a new Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first, which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Paul is making a case there for Christ as the second Adam. The first Adam was of the earth. The second Adam is the Lord from heaven. The first Adam was disobedient at a tree. The second Adam was obedient on a tree. Where Adam failed to obey in the garden, leading to death, Jesus was obedient in the garden unto death. The Bible is clear that we inherit our sin nature from uh, our first father, Adam. For a savior to be born and yet to be unstained by sin, a virgin birth was necessary. And listen, he had to be without sin, right? I'll probably mention this again later, but if he, if, 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 if the offering for sin can't be sinful or else he had to atone for his own sin, right? We need a sinless offering. That means we need a man, a human man, born in the human line who is without sin. But since Adam, not one man has been born that way. You know why? Because Adam passed down his sin, passed down his sin, and he beget him, and beget him, beget him, beget him, all the way down to Joseph. Right? That sin nature was just passed right down that line. Right? So you have to have a break in that line. You have to have a birth that's not within the natural course of that line. And that's where we get to verse 18, chapter 1 of Matthew, right? He begat Joseph, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ is in this way, a different way. There's a break in that line now. Now that sin is no longer being passed along. Now we have a human man, a fully human man, without a sin nature, a new Adam. The virgin birth is necessary. Without the virgin birth, there's no new Adam. Without a new Adam, there's no one to represent us before God. With no one to represent us before God, all we have is our sinfulness in the eyes of God and no way to atone for it because we cannot atone for our own sin because whatever doesn't come from faith is sin itself. Our own sacrifice would be sinful. Adam's, or I should say Christ was the second Adam because he was the first person to enter this world since Adam to be untainted by sin. Adam's sinful nature was credited to us 
In the same way, Christ's righteous nature is credited to us in salvation. Being in Adam means that the disobedience and guilt of Adam is given to us, and being in Christ means his obedience and righteousness is given to us. Jesus being virgin-born was necessary for him to be a new Adam. And to be a new Adam, he had to be human. This leads me to my next thought. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So the virgin birth was necessary because it validated the word of God. Without the virgin birth, the prophets were wrong. The Bible is wrong. And our salvation is in vain. The virgin birth was necessary because it created a new Adam, a new representative for the human race. In Adam we die, in Christ we're made alive. Through Adam's disobedience, we became disobedient. Through Christ's obedience, we become obedient. And thirdly, the virgin birth brought God into human flesh. He had to be human. He had to be a man. John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To get the impact of this verse, go back to verse 1 for context. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was with God, meaning the Father and the Spirit, and the word was God. That word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because God had to enter the human race in order to redeem it. Since it was man that sinned, it had to be man who was offered as the penalty for sin, as the offering for sin. But no man, beginning at Adam, could be a sinless offering. Therefore, God, the only sinless one, had to take on the penalty himself. But God can't die, can he? No. So he had to become a man. He had to take on human flesh. He had to be human in order to die. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. To make reconciliation for sin, it had to be a man. But to be a man, it had to be sinless. To be sinless, he had to be God. But since God can't die, God can't make that sacrifice. So therefore God had to be born. The only way for God to be born and not be tainted by sin was through a virgin birth. Tell me again we can compromise on the virgin birth. We can't do it. You cannot be a Christian and compromise the virgin birth. And by the way, as Christians, we undervalue the virgin birth. It is so necessary. It is the foundation of everything in the Christian life is the virgin birth of Jesus. No ordinary man could be the offering for sins since he would have his own sins to pay for. The offering for sin had to be a man and yet had to come from outside of mankind all at the same time. Galatians 4, 4-5 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He had to come from outside of us. He had to come under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He had to become a human to redeem those who were human. He had to be in the line of Adam to redeem the line of Adam. And he could only do that through a virgin birth. 
Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The humanity of Jesus is vital to our redemption and is only made possible through the virgin birth. And that brings me to my final thought here. The virgin birth was necessary to limit the messianic claim. This is important. This is where I'm telling you, I told you we'd get to the, the, the importance of the genealogies, okay? Everything in the Word of God is of value, okay? I know sometimes we get into these genealogies, right? It gets kind of boring. You're like, oh, blah, 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 and you're trying to rush. To, but listen, the genealogies are important. I'm going to show you why here in a minute. There is an identifying mark in the line of Jesus that uniquely qualifies him to be the Messiah. If you compare the genealogies, and I urge you, when you get home today, compare the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, okay? Those are the two genealogies of Jesus. Matthew was written more to the Jew, and Luke was written more to the Gentile, okay? We see that in the way they're written, right? Matthew uses a lot of Old Testament references that Gentiles wouldn't understand, right? It uses uh, predominantly Jewish um, examples, for, you know, for instance, um, you know, whereas in the other Gospels you see the kingdom of God mentioned, right? But the Jews didn't use the name of God. So you see Matthew using the term the kingdom of heaven, right? Because he's writing to a Jewish audience. Whereas Luke is not writing to Jews, he's writing to Gentiles. Matthew emphasizes the Jewishness of Jesus, tracing his lineage back to Abraham. And Luke goes past Abraham and takes him all the way back to Adam, okay? The genealogy of Matthew is tracing the line of Jesus through Joseph, and most scholars agree that Luke is tracing him through Mary. That's important. There are two requirements for the Messiah. There are two. He must be a descendant of Abraham, and he must come through the line of David. Okay? It's very important. The issue with the genealogies is that they both trace Christ back to David, but in very different ways. Matthew traces him through the royal line. That's Solomon. Okay? The royal line is through Solomon. In Matthew 1.6, we see that. And Luke traces him from David to his son Nathan in Luke 3.31. That's not the royal line, okay? If you look at Matthew 1, verses 11 and 12, we see a man named Jeconias in the royal line. The problem is that his line, Jeconias' line, was cursed so that none of his descendants could sit on the royal throne. We see that curse in Jeremiah 22, 28 through 30. Okay? In that passage, God curses Jeconiah and says none of his descendants will ever sit on the throne of David. Okay? So, here's the problem. We have one royal line through Solomon. In that line is Jeconiah. After Jeconiah, none of his descendants can sit on the throne of David. Now we have a problem. There cannot be a Messiah, can there? Okay, so if a man comes along and says he's the Messiah, he must prove he's a descendant of King David, right? Okay, so if he says I'm a descendant of David through Nathan. You see, that's wonderful, but that's not the royal line. You can't, you can't be the Messiah. If he says, well, I, I'm a descendant of David through Solomon, that's good. That's the royal line, right? But the problem is that line is cursed. Nobody coming through that line can sit on the throne of David. because he's disqualified because of the curse on Jeconiah. This means that as a virgin-born man, Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the Messiah. He is a physical descendant of King David from Mary's line through Nathan, right? 
and he's adopted by Joseph. And in Jewish adoptions, you get full, um, what is it, full rights of inheritance, meaning he becomes part of an inheritor in Solomon's line, the royal line, without being a physical descendant of Jeconiah. Therefore, he misses the curse and is able to sit upon the throne of David and be the unique Messiah. Understand that. That's in the genealogy. So according to this genealogy, the virgin birth is the only way. God set it up so that only he could provide the Messiah. And there's no mistaking his identity. If you're a descendant of Nathan, you don't qualify. You're not royal. You're a descendant of Solomon, you don't qualify. You're cursed. But Jesus comes in, physically a descendant of King David through Nathan, adopted into the royal line by, jo by Joseph. Therefore, he misses the curse and is the only person who is able to be the Messiah to lay claim to the throne of David. The virgin birth limited messianic claims. Only Jesus could be the Messiah. He alone has that right to claim the throne. Let me make application of all this and make sense of it all. The virgin birth is crucial to Christian theology because of what it means to us. It means a second Adam to redeem us where the first Adam cursed us. Without the virgin birth, the obedience of Jesus means nothing to me. But in light of it, his obedience becomes my obedience. His death, my death. His resurrection, my resurrection. Because he represents me before God as a sinless man, as the second Adam... His standing with God becomes my standing with God. Remember the first Adam, right? He sinned. His standing with God was my standing with God the day I was born. I inherited his standing with God, which was spiritual death. But in Christ, I inherit his obedience. You ever notice that God gave us the Ten Commandments, right? Anybody here ever kept it perfectly? Just all ten all the time, right? Right? If you look at the Ten Commandments, one thing I've noticed about them is they are completely unkeepable. Is that a word? You can't keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, right? But then the Bible goes and ruins, right? We, we think, well, well I, I keep it the best I can. See, th then God goes and ruins that for us. And he says, oh, by the way, uh, if you offend the law on one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. So God actually makes redemption completely impossible, right? Unless you can be sinlessly perfect. Oh, here comes Jesus, right? Doesn't inherit the sin nature, right? Doesn't inherit the curse of Adam, right? He is able to live the sinless life. And just like the first Adam disobeyed and his disobedience was given to me, when Jesus obeyed and I put my faith and trust in him, his obedience was counted as my obedience. That means, and I'm going to blow you away with this, I'm perfect before God. My wife would disagree. She knows I'm not perfect. She knows I'm not perfect. And I'm not saying I never sin. I'm saying my standing before God is just as if I never sin because it's the obedience of Jesus being counted to me, just as Adam's disobedience was counted to me. The virgin birth means a new Adam to represent us before God. It means a validation of all that God had said and promised to the prophets. Throughout the Bible, what do we see God doing? We see him remembering, right? Remember how I parted the Red Sea. Remember how I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember how, how I provided your father's manna in the wilderness, right? He constantly points back to what he's done for them as evidence that they can trust him today, right? So when we look at the virgin birth, we can look back at Isaiah 7, 14, and we can see that God is completely trustworthy and reliable because he's done what he promised in the past. We can trust God and believe what he says. 
It means that God became a man. Only a man could atone for sin, and only a sinless man would be sufficient. God himself became that sinless man and offered himself. The judge stood in place of the condemned. If we surrender the virgin birth, we lose the body of Christ, by which the writer of Hebrews says we are sanctified. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We lose his flesh through which we enter the holiest place. Hebrews 10, 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And we lose our eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. If we sacrifice the virgin birth, we sacrifice everything. Sacrifice everything. And by the way, if we undervalue the virgin birth, we're undervaluing the eternal redemption that it bought us. We're undervaluing the flesh through which we enter the holiest place. We're undervaluing the blood through which we're sanctified. And it provided for us absolute evidence of the Messiah's identity. With the line of Solomon being cursed, it took a very particular birth to qualify someone to be the Messiah. This is why the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are so vital to the Christmas story. Not just anyone could be the Messiah. In fact, no one could be unless it was an act of God, which is what the virgin birth is all about. We don't simply celebrate a man at Christmas. Lots of men have lived and died, and lots more will live and die, and they will begat them, and they will begat them, and they will be gotten by him. But the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. It was in this way. It was different. It was a different kind of birth. It was a virgin birth, and it was so necessary. We celebrate a unique man, the God-man. The first Adam left the garden in shame and passed that shame onto all who would come after him. This new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, left in victory from the garden, succeeding where the first Adam had failed. He is the better Adam, and he passes his victory onto all who come after him and follow him. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In closing, we ask, can we have absolute confidence that Jesus is the Messiah? I remember the first time I ever went street preaching, I didn't preach myself. It was 2004, and a missionary had come to our church, and he did street preachers. He, 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 we were interested, and he took us out, and he preached. After he preached, a man came up to talk to him, and he talked for a little while and left, and we all got back in the car and drove back to, we were in Fresno, we were driving back to Selma, and uh, we asked him, we said, what, what did he ask you? What started the conversation? He said, he walked up and he just asked me how I could know for sure Jesus was the Messiah. How can I be so confident? So the, the question is, can we be absolutely confident that Jesus is the Messiah? And my answer is yes. And I'll tell you what, one of those ways we can be confident is through the genealogy in Matthew and Luke, right? Nobody else, nobody born to Nathan can be the Messiah. It's not the royal line. And nobody born through Solomon's line can be the Messiah because they're cursed. That's how we can be completely confident that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the virgin birth. But let me give you three quick evidences from the Bible that Jesus is the Messiah. First one, Daniel prophesied there would be four major world empires, okay? 
Most scholars agree that these were Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. In Daniel 2.44, he says that in the days of the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. If the kingdom of the Messiah was not initiated in the days of the Roman Empire, then it never will be. Once again, that's prophecy. All right? If it didn't come true, the prophet is invalidated. Okay? So we know, we know that the kingdom of the Messiah was initiated during the time of the fourth kingdom, that being the Roman Empire. Tied into that, Daniel's timeline of 483 years, okay, Daniel chapter, I think chapter 9, he gives a 70 weeks prophecy. He prophesied that there would be 483 years from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince. That takes us right down to the life of Jesus and the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. He came just at the time of history and just at the end of the countdown. And then thirdly, the destruction of Jerusalem. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, they did an amazing thing. They destroyed with it all the records of Jewish ancestry. This means that today, no one, okay, no Jews today can say definitively that they are a descendant of David or even what tribe they actually come from. All those records were lost when the city and the temple were burned. No one could ever again prove to be a descendant of King David. The time was prophesied. The countdown to it was outlined. Jesus came at that time in history. At the end of the timeline, he lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and then God sent Rome to destroy the city of Jerusalem so that no future Messiah could ever be claimed. It was a final exclamation point on God's redemptive plan. If it didn't happen then, it's not ever going to happen. If it wasn't Jesus, it's not going to be anybody. We can have confidence that Jesus is the Messiah and the virgin birth is absolutely essential to that confidence. If we give that up, we give up everything. I want to urge you, there's a lot of temptation today to go liberal in theology. To Well, it's hard to explain these supernatural things. Let's just... let's. You can't compromise, okay? There are things that we can compromise on, isn't there, is there not, right? We can compromise on what kind of hymnal we use, don't we? We can compromise what kind of songs we sing in church. We can so compromise whether we pass the plates or put an offering box in the back, right? We can't compromise the virgin birth. Everything, everything relies on the virgin birth. And our confidence that Jesus is who he says he is and that we are saved today goes right back to the virgin birth of Jesus, Hold fast. Don't give it up. What God promised, he fulfilled. A new Adam, a new and better way, victory over sin, death, and the grave, a body, the offering of which opens up the way to God. And this is all the story of Christmas. Don't undervalue the virgin birth. Don't undervalue it. Everything that we believe today flows from the virgin birth. Everything that we believe today is validated by the virgin birth. Jesus Christ is validated by the virgin birth. His death and resurrection are validated by the virgin birth. The word of God is validated by the virgin birth. Nobody could be the Messiah unless they were virgin born. It's absolutely necessary. This Christmas, which is ending... And every Christmas, don't let this season pass undervaluing what God did during this, this time of year. This is the story of Christmas. It's our redemption. Let's bow for prayer.